so again, you generate a revenue through some other things, some agency work, some custom work. You're learning through some some of the you know things you're signing with these the things, agency, but you're yeah. you're pre SaaS revenue today. You just launched it a month ago. Yeah, there's very early revenue from like the uh, uh, design work. You are listening to Conversations with Nathan Latka, where I sit down and interview the top SaaS founders, like Eric Wan from Zoom. If you'd like to subscribe, go to gitlatka.com. We've published thousands of these interviews, and if you want to sort through them quickly by revenue or churn, CAC, valuation, or other metrics, the easiest way to do that is to go to gitlatka.com and use our filtering tool. It's like a big Excel sheet for all of these podcast interviews. Check it out right now at gitlatka.com. Hey folks, my guest today is Or Weiss. He's the CEO and founder of Permit.io and co-maintainer and author of Open Source Opal.ac. He's a serial entrepreneur who's passionate about developer tools, previously founding RookOut.com, a leading production debugging solution and managing upwards Israel's largest founders PLG community. Before becoming a founder, he worked as a lead engineer in multiple cybersecurity and big data companies, intelligence corporations, and as a consultant for the Ministry of Defense as a VP of R&D at Netline CT Cyber Division. Or are you ready to take us to the top? Yeah, I'm excited to be here. It's going to be fun. You're one of these like super smart ex-Israeli defense guys, huh? Uh, well, I, I try my best. I did get an <laughs> early start. So I started working with, uh, with software at the age of five, thanks to my uh, bigger sister. And uh, yeah, and I got to serve in the intelligence score in the IDF in 8200. And that's really kind of a, really a runway for acceleration that the uh, basically changed my life and uh, uh, and is awesome so what years how old are you were you when you were in the idf um so i was uh between 18 and two up to 24 so i served for slightly longer than uh, than most um and i obviously i started off just as a as a grunt and i moved my way up to be a uh, an officer and a team lead, uh, but throughout most of my role, I was very hands-on as kind of a software engineer, reverse engineer, et cetera, et cetera. So what were you doing? I mean, am I allowed to ask questions about what you did at 8200? Yeah, you can ask about everything, but I'll have to kill you. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't want to die. So is there anything you can share with me that wouldn't get me killed just to give us a yeah. sense of what you were working on? So actually, it's it's been more than seven years since my service, so I can be slightly more open about it, but I obviously can't go into much detail. But I can tell you that I worked a lot in software engineering and cybersecurity, and I can tell you that I had the good fortune of working on projects that were critical for the security of uh, both the state in Israel and other allied nations. Um, I worked on a lot of cases that um, I described in other talks as uh, working on high stacks and high stakes. Uh, for example, I had a situation where uh, I was required to deploy software to production, but people told me, you only have four attempts to get this right. And if you fail, people would die. So not exactly CICD. Um, and uh, obviously a lot of stakes. And I also in that specific incident, I ended up running into a bug that uh, kind of uh, thwarted our endeavors initially. And we really tore our minds to find where it is. And it ended up being a vulnerability in Windows itself, in the operating system. And I think um, seven years later or so, it was announced as a CVE. But before that, it was unknown. 
Um, so we both had to uh, dive deep into the stack and also handle those high stakes. And those kind of situations, I think, really taught me a lot about um, taking software to the edge, into the extreme cases and uh, making the best out of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, just to be clear, I believe the 1800 unit, uh, it's, you guys are, that's a part of the, the Israeli intelligence corps. It's also the largest and best known. And really, I mean, this would be mm-hmm. the unit that if I'm making this up, okay, but this would be the unit if, if another country was t- was trying to launch a cyber attack on Israel, you're, this would be the group that's trying to prevent that cyber attack. Not just cyber attacks. So 8200 is essentially the equivalent of the NSA. It's just not a civilian body. It's a military entity, but otherwise it's exactly the same. I even got to work a bit with the NSA as part of my service, uh, which is cool. It's very interesting to see the differences between between the two. Um, and what's unique about 8200 is it, it gets its first pick out of uh, the draftees into the IDF. And uh, it's fully independent. It's structured in a way. So if the entire IDF, if the entire state of Israel crumbles to dust, it should still be able to function on its own. And that also creates a lot of interesting um, mechanics within the organization. Yeah, certainly deterrence. That would be, be, even if you take us out, we still exist. Um, I guess last question, um, if if the prime minister of Israel is trying to send private communications to another country, you guys would also handle things like encryption of those messages and things of that nature, right? That's a separate body. So so that's actually a difference from the NSA. The NSA is responsible both for uh, securing the infrastructures and uh, intelligence monitoring. Um, uh, the ISNU or eighty two hundred is only responsible for intelligence. I see, and and can in collecting intelligence. Yeah, just basically just collecting intelligence in a yeah. lot of different ways, a lot of different spectrums, a lot of different techs, but just collecting intelligence, which is a lot of work by itself. I'm getting a sense I can't ask for you to give me an example of some intelligence you collected and how you did it. Um, let's see. Maybe I can. So there's also things that are kind of um, open that are as part of the unit. So part of it is something called uh, OSINT, open source intelligence. So just having someone to comb the web, uh, searching through articles, searching for information there, um, that's also part of the intelligence work done in that unit. But that's, I'd say, definitely the least of it. A lot of the things on the other spectrum, uh, even if I told you, you'd probably think that I'm kind of reading from a science fiction story. Um, and, uh, yeah, I probably shouldn't go into those, but all right, let's go into permit. Think it is, it's probably that. All right. Fair enough. And probably worse than anything I could think, because that's what's required in today's world, but permit.io. So what are people paying you for? What's the company do? So it's very straightforward. We allow developers to bake permissions into their products in an easy fashion and the way in a way that it's future proof. So they only have to build it once and they don't have to constantly rebuild it. I got to that. As in my previous company, Rookout, I ended up rebuilding access control for our product five times in a three-year-old company. Oh, geez. And I was like, that's annoying. That's probably four times, if not five times, too many. And, uh, and we quickly realized that this is common for basically every product. You've seen these interfaces, these capabilities across the space a billion times. Things like user management with the ability to assign roles. API key management, approval flows, ability to ask permissions from another user, audit logs, the ability to see who did what within the system, the ability for each of the tenants within the system to see that on their own. 
uh, and invites and impersonation and emergency access. And you've seen all of these things a billion times. And every time you saw them, some poor schlep of a developer had to build them from scratch. And what we're saying is very straightforward. Just like you don't want to build your authentication, just like you don't want to build billing, just like you don't want to build a database, there's no reason that you'll have to build authorization or permissions. So we provide them ready out of the box. You just plug them into your software as an SDK and microservice, and you get interfaces on top, both for yourself as a manager and developer, and both for your customers that want to work with your product. And unless you want to build something, you don't have to. This use case makes obviously tons of sense. Give me a sense of what you're targeting. SMB, mid-market enterprise, what's the average customer paying per month right now to use the technology? So we're first of all, we're doing product-led growth and bottom-up. So everything is organic as people approach it. So we started with open source and a lot of uh, uh, companies find us through that. Um, and uh, we target the developers themselves. So it doesn't really matter if you're a developer in a tiny startup or if you're working as part of a team in a larger organization, you're facing really the same pain points and you need to adopt the technology in a very similar fashion. But what are they paying? I, we, I, get, I totally understand the use case here, but I'm curious how you monetize. So we monetize through a usage-based pricing model. So you pay as you go according to the amount of users that you authorize. So the more users you have, the more you pay. And through that, we really try to align with the top line of both sides. So when your business business grows and caters to more customers, you're probably making more money. And so we can share in that win-win kind of situation. So what's the typical number of seats like a new customer might like start on day one with, with Permit? Are we talking like five seats or like 5,000 seats? So it, it really depends. For So first of all, it's really important to indicate that these are not seats. So it's not the... Uh, licenses for your developers. It's for your end users. It depends on how many end users you have as a as a company de- delivering a product. And we we see everything between uh, several hundreds to uh, tens of thousands at the moment. Okay, so several hundred. I'm just playing with the slider on your pricing page. Several hundred. So five thousand monthly active users would be about a grand per month. Yeah, and uh, first of all, what we do have for like a thousand users, thousand monthly active users. That's still within our free quota, which is important to indicate. And uh, uh, yeah, but uh, as you grow or as you move to other uh, other tiers because you need more features, uh, yeah, you pay according to that pricing tier and slider. Okay, fair enough. Um, give me more of the backstory here. What, what year did you go launch the company in? So we got started uh, basically a year and a half ago. We bootstrapped for a year. Um, so my co-founder and I worked in garage mode, but not in a garage because I don't have a garage. Um, and we initially started by working with design partners and just delivering the SaaS offering to them, kind of more a bit more hand-holding. Then as part of the service we built, we had a, 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 um, a microservice, a component uh, that synced the application with the, uh, the, sorry, the authorization layer with the application itself. We decided to export that as an open source project. And that's what's called Opal today, which you mentioned kind of in the opening brief. And while Opal is a rather young project, it's not even a year old, it's already being used in production in amazing companies like Tesla, Zapier, Accenture, and others. And we have a rather large community of developers in Slack. On a What's day. large? How many? Um, we're getting close to 300 people on Slack. Okay. And, and why is that? Like, I mean, I have a Slack group with 18 or people in it, but 99% of them never say anything. So why do you use the number in Slack as, a, as the success metric? 
So it's not that you asked for the number. I said, uh, what I was trying to emphasize is the amount of people that are engaging with the community that are asking questions. And those, and you'd find uh, several per day asking questions. I see. I see. Got it. So 300 in the group, several actively engaging. How many, I mean, isn't the right question with any open source project, how many developers have contributed at least one line of code in the past 12 months? No, so that's definitely a good indicator, but it's not necessarily the most important one because there's a difference between contributing and using. And What's most important for you? For me, the using part. I see. Because, because that... Uh, the using and asking for features that really teaches me on what the market needs and how the problem space looks and the details of it. So, for example, when Tesla came in and they asked for more features and capabilities to take this to production, that was a shitload of information, pardon my French, that really got us to understand how this would look in greater scales and in uh, more infrastructure complexity than we necessarily see ourselves with the smaller players. So how many Teslas are there today? How many installs? So it's not it's not installed on a Tesla. It's part of their fleet management solution. So no, 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 no. <laughs> or I'm asking that's an example. How many companies like Tesla have installed an instance? Are using the open source? Yeah, I'd say at least five that I know of. But since it's open source, um, maybe more. Okay, I, I see. Have, we don't have full visibility on who installs this. We just put the code online, and anyone can take it. Do you guys care about valuation right now, specifically your valuation? Do you think you might raise soon or sell a portion of the company? There is no other tool on the internet that you can use to get a better and higher valuation than FounderPath's new valuation tool. We have over 253 deals that went down over the past 30 days, all the revenue numbers, all the valuations, and the multiplier. That way you can go filter the data, find companies that are your same size, what they sold or raised for or at, and then use those as comparables in your decks to argue and debate and get a higher valuation and less dilution, which is the name of the game, less dilution. Check it out today at founderpath.com forward slash products. That's plural forward slash valuations. Again, both plural founderpath.com forward slash products forward slash valuations. So you're watching, I think this is super smart. You go from agency to open source to five like large companies like Tesla's app, you're installing the thing using it. You're learning from that feedback loop. Are you still mm -hmm. pre-revenue then today? You haven't you haven't started charging so we've yet? Started, we've started some early revenue. So we launched our SaaS offering as kind of uh, open to everyone as part of our announcement of coming out of Stealth a month ago. Ah. And we now have uh, almost, a we're getting close to a dozen customers heading to production. And okay, does that, mean, does that mean they're paying? So that means that they're a step before paying. I see. Okay. But it doesn't have basically raise your hand and said, I'm willing to pay for these things. And you're yeah, said, okay, we'll get you launched in, in 60 days. Some of them are large corporations and they already sent us through procurement. I see. Going I see. Security questionnaires going through the compliance parts. Yeah. So okay. it's almost there. And I'm, I'm actually kind of bewildered that we were able to do that in uh, a bit over a month. But but so again, you generate a revenue through some other things, some agency work, some custom work. You're learning through some some of the you know things you're signing with these the things. But you're you're but you're pre but you're pre SaaS revenue today. You just launched it a month ago. Yeah, there's very early revenue from like the uh, uh, design partners. But that's, of course, yeah. yeah. This is a very smart. I think a lot of folks starting out, you, you I would say, are very experienced with startups. For those of you listening that are new to startups, like this whole idea of going and launching an agency. And then signing up design partners who are prepaying for product roadmap, and then 
turning the design partners into your first SaaS customers is like really a smart way to build a SaaS business. Uh, so, or it makes sense the strategy here. Thank you. I'd like to emphasize that the agency play is not really an agency. Like we don't charge them for the for the service or professional services, but it is a way to interact with them uh, professionally and learn from what what they need and get to product market fit. And then as a follow up to that, to go to market fit. Yep. Now, are you still bootstrapping today or have you raised capital? We've raised a 6 million seed round in July. Uh, okay. So last year did a 6 million seed. Um, fairly large, I would say fairly large seed round, even by today's standards for a pre-revenue company, but your background probably, I mean, it makes sense why you would get that. Did you price that round or was that on a note? It was a completely a safe. A safe. Okay. Uncapped safe. Uh, no, it was, uh, it's a capped safe, but, uh, so how do you, I guess my question to you is most, most pre-seed rounds are right. Like at a stage you were doing, it's going to be a million dollar on a safe with a five cap. You obviously didn't do a 5 million cap because you raised 6 million. So how do you come up with the right yeah, that would be a very bad idea to do. Yeah. <laughs> so how, so what was the question? Sorry. How do you guys come up with a cap, right? Raising 6 million on a note or safe. Um, you start by, uh, wetting your finger and waving it in the air and getting a gauge from that. And the rest of it is negotiation, like everything else in the market. Um, so you try to get a sense of what you can get for this. And then in negotiation, you move a bit to the left, a bit to the right. And But I, honestly, I wasn't optimizing for the valuation. I was optimizing for the players I want to work with and the types of relationships I want to have with the uh, ongoing longer journey of the company. Um, and I even, I think in some parts of it, I... Uh, um, decided to opt for a lower valuation to work with people that I wanted. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That's why anyone should raise all the time. It should be to bring strategic partners in. But most folks, you know, dilution's a real thing. You have to manage. Most folks are selling, you know, fifteen to twenty percent of the business in their pre-seed or seed round. Were you sort of in that same range? Fifty percent of their business. If you're doing 50%, 15. 15. Uh, 15. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. Um, yeah. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just curious. Were you sort of in that same range as everyone else? Right, fifteen to twenty percent. Uh, yeah, slightly better, but, but okay, so slightly, better. so slightly better would be you raised 6 million and you were able to get away with selling less than sort of 15%, you know, effectively at whatever that cap would be. So the cap would be something like, uh, uh, 20, 20 million, 25 million, something like that. Yeah. I, I'd rather not go into the full details, but, but yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. So where are you using that capital? What, why'd you need that much capital to build this? So I'd say two reasons, two main, uh, outlets of calling. Uh, one is to get the right people and to build something for developers that is such a critical part of infrastructure and affects uh, both the software development cycle and the security posture of an organization. You really need to get this top-notch uh, and you need to build top-notch things. You need top-notch people. So we, we don't skimp on... Uh, the people that we were being and how we uh, connect them to the organization. So that's one, and that's that's basically classic. And uh, the other part is uh, buying enough focus time. So with a product-led growth motion, your focus, and we were actually getting luckier than we expected, but in general, the, um, the best practice is to allow yourself the time to grow organically with the market and focus on capitalization and sales only later down the funnel. So how many years or months of runway did 6 million buy you based off your projections? A, a bit over two years. With like a bit the, over two years. 
Got yeah. it. And by the way, my valuation math was wrong a second ago. If you sold less than 15%, it would have been something more like a six on a 40 cap. But point being, you brought in good strategic partners. You bought yourself thinking time for two plus years. It's more than just thinking time. It's time to kind of adjust and learn the product market fit, but also allow time to allow things to grow. I'll give you an example um, from another company, a successful company, Sneak, which I'll, I also happen to be uh, a ambassador for, which is a cute kind of title. Um, Sneak took about um, almost a bit over two years to get to a million ARR, which is considered slow if you look if you think classic enterprise slaves. But two years later, they were already a multi-billion dollar company. So the hockey stick there is very steep. And yeah, no, I you get it. You, we, we, have, we see stories all the time. I mean, sit at GitLab, you could follow in his shoes, right? Very similar patterns here. So I'm not discrediting this strategy. I'm just trying to understand what strategy you're pursuing. It makes sense to me. Um, so how many growth first. That's the point. Yeah, growth. Yeah, so PLG, growth first. Totally understand that. You want to get that five install base up to 500,000, 5 million, and then sort of go from there. What's the team size today? How many folks full time? So we're now uh, four, 13, actually 14. Okay. Um, and we'll grow to around 16 uh, immediately. And that's what I'm kind of calling cruising altitude. All right. 16 to cruising altitude or we're exciting story here. Uh, we're out of time, but let's in the meantime, wrap up with the famous five. Number one, favorite business book. Um, I'll give you something that's not exactly a business book, but I use a lot of metaphors from it to, for business. And it's my favorite book in general, The Selfish Gene by Richard Dawkins. It's a book that basically explains what life is, what life is, and how it's uh, geared towards for to move forward, and what evolution is. And I constantly find uh, equivalencies in both business and software development. Number two, is there a CEO you're following or studying? Um, I am an avid admirer of uh, the Collison brothers at running Stripe. It's just astounding to see the behemoth that they were able to build. Number three, what's your favorite online tool for building permit besides your own? Online tool to build permit, you say? Just something um, you use, yeah. Yeah, I'd say currently um, it's, uh, currently and recently it's uh, GitHub Copilot. I'm astounded not only by how good it is by de delivering code, but also documentation. Like I start to write the documentation as part of an MD file and it gives recommendations for the content of the documentation that is slightly better than what I had in mind. Mm -hmm. um, so um, that's powerful on a lot of angles. Yep. Okay, great. Number four, how many hours of sleep are you getting every night? I try to get at least six and sometimes I'd say I'd average at seven. And what's your situation? We're married, single kids? Married, uh, no kids yet. No kids yet. All right. And how old are you? I'm, I'll be 36 uh, in July. Very cool. Happy early. Well, it's still got a, a little ways. So 35 years old. Last question. Something you wish you knew when you were 20. Something I wish I knew when I was 20. Um, that's a very good question. I think um, if you pace yourself, you can learn a lot more things by... Um, gradually then by running yourself forward into the wall, which I've, I think I've done too much. 
Guys between 18 and 24, he was cutting his teeth in the IDF unit 8200. You know what that unit does. He then got into some product-led stuff and said, you know what? I'm, I hate building the same thing over and over. He's now trying to solve that problem for a lot of people. He's, right now, Zapier's using it. Tesla's using it. It's called Permit.io. Well, Permit.io is on top of an open, open source platform that he's built, which is gaining traction. To buy himself time to learn and pivot appropriately, they raised $6 million at cost, somewhere around a $40 million cap, sold less than 15% of the business last year. Now 13 strong, trying to go to 16 to get to cruising altitude to keep building out this open source platform. We will see what happens next. Or thanks for taking us to the top. Thank you. It was a pleasure.